Hello, everyone. I'm Melissa Beck. Um, okay. Uh, I'm Melissa Beck, and I'm going to speak to you a little bit today on addiction and toxicology. Um, so I'm a toxicologist by training. Um, I teach biochemistry, so for those students of mine who are in the, off, uh, in the audience, they'll expect a little biochemistry. Um, but I want you to just be aware of the fact that, first of all, I, I'm not an expert in this. I got involved in this. What I learned, I learned because I adopted a child who was born addicted to uh, opiates. And so I did a lot of research because that's what a researcher does. And this is a little bit of that and a little bit of my understanding of, of the issues that are going on in, in the opiate in the field of opioid addiction. So um, because of that, then, my goal is to provide you with some information and then hopefully have a forum where those of you who are actually in the healthcare setting who are working with, uh, with folks who are suffering from addiction or especially, um, and especially the children who are born addicted, that maybe we can discuss what best practices are out there. Um, so feel free to, to just have that uh, when we get to that question and answer time or even before um, provide your insights on that as well okay so here's just a little bit of information on what we're going to talk about first of all I'm going to give you a little bit of background on opiates probably much of this you already know and I understand if you've gone through the walkthrough you've probably seen all of this anyway um, are you able to hear me Wonderful. I should have checked that before. Okay. Then we're going to talk about biochemistry and a little bit of pharmacology on opiates and um, how we get to addiction, um, what addiction looks like clinically in adults, and then focus in on kids because that's where my personal heart is, um, and then some treatment options that are available. And we're going to cover the pharmacologic treatment options, uh, not in not in their totality, but just give you some of the some of the big ones that are being used, and then also the non-pharmacologic treatment options. So, um, and forgive me if there's any words that I say that you're not understanding, just raise your hand and I'll try to make sure that I explain them, okay? I do tend to sometimes go into vernacular, so just give me, uh, give me a heads up. And then finally, some further considerations as to like, how we go about working with individuals who are suffering from addiction. Okay, so in terms of opiates, we've certainly known for thousands of years that opiates have the ability to uh, produce addiction. Um, and they were originally derived from the uh, poppy plant as a dried extract. And then we have taken that information and we've created synthetic opiates that are being used today. So for all of the different derivatives that came from the original poppy, they all con contained uh, phenanthrene der derivatives such as codeine and morphine. Uh, some of the major uses, obviously the most common uses for, uh, for opioids are to treat acute and chronic pain. Um, and then we also have a lot of non-analgesic uses. It's used to treat uh, diarrhea as well as, cough, as, as a cough suppressant, and that's where you'll see a lot of the codeine. So um, where we're dealing with most of the addiction potential is in the, the treatment of both acute and chronic pain. Um, but with regard, without... For all of the uh, drugs that are available, we have a variety of routes that are available to us. So you can see it being administered orally by IV. So there's transdermal patches. Just about any of the uh, different types of routes that you'd like to use, they're available for, uh, for administration. So one of the key things that... Um, that we know about opiates, again, is the fact that it causes addiction. And it's actually uh, one of the interesting things to me was the fact that the opium wars that happened in the early 1800s actually resulted in the loss of Hong Kong from control in China to, uh, given over to Great Britain. So the reason that Hong Kong was actually under Great Britain's control is because um, the East India Trading Company uh, out of Britain was bringing opiates into China and China wasn't wanting to see that anymore, so they stopped all the importation of opiates. And as a result of that, Britain got really upset, and they started, uh, they attacked China, and there were a couple of wars, and then at the end of that, China lost, and they lost control of Hong Kong in the process. So it's kind of an interesting um, piece of history there. Uh, but then focusing in on the U.S., and, and, and 
a lot of my discussion is going to be on what's going on in the U.S., but I want you to understand that this is just not a North American issue. So we know that there are many countries across the world who are dealing with addiction. Um, for example, Afghanistan, we see a lot of imports of, of uh, opiates, of heroin coming out of Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, the reasons for addiction are very different from what we see in the U.S., for example, heroin is so cheap in, in Afghanistan that children are being given heroin to treat hunger as opposed to, to being given food. So um, they're also being given uh, heroin to treat minor issues like toothache. So very different reasons, but ultimately the problem is the same across all of the world. Uh, but in the U.S., statistics as late as 2017 have indicated that more than 47,000 deaths occurred as a result of opioid overdose. At that same time, that represented a six-fold increase in the number of deaths from 1999 to 2017. So it's a huge increase in the number of, of uh, deaths. And that actually represented 130 deaths of Americans every day at that time. And it's only gotten worse. So the CDC reports this slide, and they, they talk about the uh, the incidence or the prevalence of opioid-induced um, overdo overdose as a result of a three-pronged wave of, uh, of cause. And the first cause came from uh, a pre prescription of analgesics, so a huge, a 20-fold increase in the prescription of analgesics. The second wave came when um, we started to see heroin moving into the U.S., and we'd see a lot of heroin making it onto the street and being sold. So now we're starting to see a lot of heroin overdose. And then most recently, as, late, as early as 2013, now we start to see fentanyl, fentanyl and fentanyl derivatives moving into the, into the U.S. Um, and we're seeing a lot of, and that's really one of the big problems now is the fentanyl overdoses. Um, so again... With regard to the epidemic of opioid overdose, there's been a 20-year increase in overdose deaths as a result of prescription opioid analgesics. So a person goes in, they're dealing with acute or chronic pain, they're prescribed a, a medication, and they come home and they have not been counseled as to its, its ability to produce addiction. We're doing better with that now, but this has been an ongoing struggle, and so a lot of a lot of uh, people didn't realize or didn't understand that they could become addicted to their, their medication. Um, and then we also see a surge in illicit, illicit opioid overdose deaths. So again, this is where we have fentanyl and opioid derivatives that are being made in China and Mexico, and they're, they're rushing into the U.S. Um, I just saw a statistic today that said that two pounds of, uh, two pounds of fentanyl goes for $2 million on the market. So um, just a huge increase in uh, money-making opportunities for illicit uh, manufacturing uh, labs um, resulting in this, in this uh, issue here in the U.S. Okay, so again, my students would, would be shocked if I didn't provide some sort of biochemistry, so here's where we get into that. So opioids... As a rule, they bind to one of three major classes of receptors, of opioid receptors, and those, um, there's actually more than those three classes, but the three, uh, the three major ones are the mu, kappa, and delta, and the mu receptor is the one that produces the euphoric effect, so binding to the mu receptor is the one that gives you the high that um, if you're addicted that you're going to try to go after more. Um, all of these classes together are identified as endorphins, and the word endorphin comes from the fact that it's endogenous, meaning inside the body, it's created in the body, so endo, and then the R-fin comes from morphine. So morphine has a receptor that it's supposed to use inside the body, okay? There's a varying distribution of all of these receptors across the nervous system, and what that makes it really difficult to... Um, to really pinpoint where your drug might be producing its effect. And we know for a fact that most of the opioids that are available will bind to multiple receptors. So if they have widespread distribution and they're binding multiple receptors, it makes the treatment complex because you're not just looking at, well, if we can affect the mu receptor or we can block mu binding, then maybe we don't 
see some of this. We have to have, to have a multifaceted approach. Um, okay, so when we're talking about binding the mu receptor, the CNS, act, uh, the CNS effects that we'll see include euphoria, sedation, and respiratory depression, and those are the big ones that we think about when we're talking about addiction. But they also produce excessive pupil constriction and nausea and vomiting. So generally, when we're talking about binding of the opioids to these receptors, it's a dose-dependent effect. And if you're a toxicologist, that's a really exciting word because we know that the dose makes the poison. So if you increase the dose, then you get more of an effect. But that's only half the story when we talk about opioids and, um, and many CNS-active compounds because we start to see what's called drug tolerance. So as we bind these receptors and we, uh, the body identifies that you're, you're providing it um, opioids, and so this opioid uh, ligand. So it gets very excited and it puts out a few more receptors so that it takes a little bit, um, and as it puts out those more receptors, then more opiates can bind to those extra receptors. That makes sense. But at the same time, because it's recognizing that it's get more, getting more of an effect, we see receptor desensitization. So the same amount of binding produces less or no effect. So we see more receptors going to the cell surfaces, but binding those receptors has less of an effect. This upsets the body, and it says, well, wait a minute, I, I really liked that effect, so how do I deal with that? Well, we put more receptors out, and if we put more receptors out, um, then what's there can bind that. But all of that is going on, and the person is feeling that they're not getting the effect that they expected to get before. So what, what caused them a euphoric effect yesterday isn't going to cause them the same quantity of effect today. It's not a one-day thing, but obviously over time they start to see less of an effect. So they'll take more opiates, and as they're taking more opiates, then your body responds by giving you more receptors, but then it turns off those receptors. So it's a vicious cycle that ramps up the amount of dosing that the person feels like they have to have to get the effect that they really want. Now when we talk about withdrawal, what's really going on is that the person is not, the, the person either because they're between doses or hits um, or because they are actively trying to stop their addiction, they don't take their next hit. And so the body recognizes this as a lack of a response. And it's still in craving, so it's wanting that effect. And we will still, um, biochemically what it looks like is we've blocked that, that effect. We've blocked the receptor or we've blo blocked the effect. But Clinically, what we see is, is all of the opposite effects that what, uh, of what we saw when we gave the opiate. So, in essence, if you're thinking of it from a biochemistry standpoint, it almost looks like antagonism, blocking the receptor. So, when we're talking about opioid, uh, opioid withdrawal in adults, we'll see a variety of effects, including muscle spasms, agitation, yawning, which when I was first looking at this, it seemed very strange to me, but yawning, tearing and sweating, a runny nose, um, piloerection, which is basically your hair standing up on end, um, vomiting and diarrhea, a mildly elevated heart rate, and insomnia. So a lot of the things that if you look back at what opiates do, this is the opposite of it. Okay, so these effects will start to show up 6 to 12 hours after the person has had their last dose, which is what drives them to get their next dose. But if you go long enough, you will go into full-on withdrawal. In an adult, getting through the initial stages, the most severe portion of withdrawal can take up to a week and a half to two weeks. That doesn't mean that they're completely over their addiction. It just means that that's where they get through most of the worst effects. But that's a long time for somebody who's gone without that euphoric effect and who's dealing with these symptoms. So that's what drives them back to the drug. And that's what's going on in adults. But now I want to switch over and talk about the other innocent victims. And this is the children that have been born to uh, addicted moms. So when we're talking about addic uh, addic children born to addiction, what we're talking about is a syndrome called neonatal abstinence syndrome. Neonatal abstinence syndrome refers to um, 
the fact that the child has been exposed to an illicit drug, um, generally illicit, but it can be really anything that has the potential to produce addiction, all through development, in utero development. And then at birth, they're no longer accessing that drug because they've been separated from mom. Now, if mom is, uh, is nursing them and she's still actively taking drugs, then they would get some of that effect through the milk. But in general, there's been a cutoff, and that's when we induce withdrawal. Children born, uh, oh, so with neonatal abstinence syndrome, this refers to any drug of addiction. Okay, it's not specific to opiates, but it's most commonly associated with opiates. So when you see NAS, a lot of people will say that's an opiate addiction. It doesn't have to be, but it is commonly uh, what, we'll, what we'll be talking about. Alcoholism is a different receptor? Alcoholism is a different receptor, yes. Yep, thank you. Um, okay, so the statistics, and this is... The most recent statistic I could find was 2007, and it's, I'm sure it's higher than this. But in 2007, it was estimated that about 20% of all pregnant women were being prescribed opiates for chronic pain. Pregnancy in and of itself can be a painful process, so it doesn't necessarily seem shocking that that is the case. But when you know about the potential for addiction in children and also in adults, that's staggering that it was 20%. Now, that constituted at the same time, uh, well, I'm sorry, in 2014, we had seen a, um, a fourfold increase in the rate of children born to uh, addicted moms. So from 1999 to 2014, it had quadrupled. And that represented one child in every, being born addicted every 15 minutes across the U.S. So... That's bad, but then we need to talk about diagnosis. And diagnosis is a whole different beast. Because one of the most important things with diagnosis is maternal self-reporting. And maternal self-reporting, they have to, they walk into, they go into either their OBGYN, which a lot of them don't use, but, or they go in to, um, to the ER and they say they're in labor and they go into maternity and then they would have to say, hey, I am, I'm addicted to opiates. A lot of them don't do that, though, because they're afraid of judgment. So the healthcare team, um, through no fault of their own, so I'm not trying to dig on any, anyone in the audience who's in the healthcare field, please understand that, but the healthcare team um, sometimes has this perception of why Someone became addicted, and so uh, the mom who's addicted knows that there's, there's a potential that they might be judged on it. Maybe they're going to lose their kids. Maybe they won't get to keep this child, so they don't tell anybody. They try to hide it. Um, and I'll tell you, unfortunately, many women who are addicted to heroin will take a hit after they start to go through labor because... Labor is a difficult, painful process. So they'll shoot up and then they'll go into the, the hospital and say, I'm, I'm uh, in labor. So they might be high walking into, into the hospital. And that's a, last, that's a last high for the child before the child is born. So if mom doesn't self-report, then a lot of the rest of the stuff doesn't necessarily happen unless you've got somebody who's looking for it and knows that it's a potential. Um, if they don't self-report or if they do, then we can move into drug testing. Drug testing requires that you take a blood sample from mom and you look to see what she's, what she's been exposed to. Again, if she's good at hiding it, they may not be looking for it. And if, they, if those two things are missed and the baby doesn't show signs right away, then the baby can get discharged back to mom and no one would ever be the wiser that the child is going home ready to go move into withdrawal. Okay, so this has led the, the lack of um, self-reporting and the, and the concern over missing that particular problem has led a lot of healthcare professionals to suggest that maybe we should require every woman coming into the hospital who's in active labor to take a, a drug test. And on the surface, that's a great idea. But what happens if mom, again, is worried that she knows she's high and she's going to come back high and then, or she's going to come back with these drugs in her system and then she's going to lose her kid. So 
then she might say, no, I, I'm not, I refuse that. And then we get into the ethical concerns of uh, unreasonable or unlawful search and seizure. Our Fourth Amendment right requires that we have the right to say no to a drug test unless we're under suspicion and there is a court order. Um, so we would have to deal with that issue, too. And, and as Americans, we don't like to lose our, our Fourth Amendment rights. Um, so, so self-reporting and drug testing, they're big concerns. But if for some reason the child, if we can get past that, either she self-reports or we have a blood test that says she's uh, positive, then we move on to and know to start looking at the child. Um, or maybe we notice something with the child that suggests we need to be looking. So what we'll do is we'll collect cord blood and, excuse me, fecal uh, samples, and we'll start looking for, uh, for, for what drugs the child may have been exposed to. A lot of times what we'll see is a combination of drugs, but we're going to focus again back on opiates. Um, uh, and again, if the team doesn't know to look for it, they're not going to be pulling those samples, Okay. Then the last thing that we can do with diagnosis is a clinical observation. And this requires a scoring tool that we call the Finnegan Neonatal Abstinence Scoring Tool, or the Finnegan Score. Um, Finnegan scoring involves uh, assessment of the child every three to four hours for a period of up to four days. Now, I'll tell you, if you're not expecting it, you're not going to start doing your Finnegan scoring until the child starts to show the symptoms. And symptoms for withdrawal in a child will take one to two days to, to start to develop. In adults, it's six hours. In, in neonates, it's one to two days. And that has to do with uh, differences in metabolism um, and, and rates of uh, breakdown of the opiates. So it can take longer than, they, than the kid might end up being in the nurse or in the hospital. But if they start to look, they're going to look every three to four hours for a period of four days. And what they're looking for is a set of 21 different signs. There's, I'll show you a tool, and I'll show you the actual tool in a second. But the signs range from anything from tremors to uh, sneezing to diarrhea to uh, hypertonicity, there's a uh, blood or uh, skin splotching, so there's a whole list of things. And the great thing about this tool is the, the person who's doing the assessment, which is often our nurses, shout out to the nurses, you're doing a hard job in a very difficult situation. So the nurses are, are scoring these, and they don't have to say, well, this is the most severe thing that I've seen. They just write in that they've seen it, and there's a number that it gets attached to it. Mild to severe tremors get different scores, but the score is right there on the sheet. So all they have to do is say, yes, they saw it, and there's a little number that goes with that. And at the bottom, they add it all up, and for that time, the, the child gets a score of 1 to, I don't know, 40. Uh, but any score that is greater than 7 for more than three consecutive assessments, so that's 9 to 12 hours, will generally lead to pharmacologic intervention. So now we're going to go in and we're going to give them a drug to help them through that process of withdrawal. Okay, so here's the scoring tool. And I couldn't put the whole list on. on. So the list does go on from this. It's a, an 8.5 by 11 sheet. And if you, oh, apparently it's big enough that I can see on here, not on um, There's different numbers and the numbers correlate with the severity of the findings, but again, the person who's doing the scoring doesn't have to worry about which score they, they give. In addition to all of this, if they know to be looking for it, they're going to be encouraging non-pharmacologic interventions. So things that don't require drugs, like baby cuddling. Have you all heard about baby cuddling? Yeah, that's a big thing now, and that's people come into NICUs and they hold on to the babies for a few hours because it helps them through the worst of their, of their withdrawal. Um, so those other interventions are already ongoing. The Finnegan score just really refers to whether we need to start using a drug. Okay, so some of the clinical signs of neonatal abstinence syndrome are listed here. Um, a few things that I want to pull out. The muscle hypertonicity. So what that's really referring to is, um, is very stiff muscles. So... A child who is born addicted, who has this muscle hypertonicity, you could pick them up by the, the small of their back, and their entire body would look like they have achieved uh, good muscle, good head control at birth, which if you have had a child, you know is not 
not, not what happens. They have poor head control. Their muscles go everywhere. These children are born in the fetal position, and they want to stay in that position. Pulling their arms away from their bodies uh, is very difficult. Uh, you actually have to fight them to get them to release. They're very, um, they're very um, stiff. Okay. Um, and from my own personal experience, I can tell you that when I held my daughter the first, and, and when we were realizing that that was an issue, it didn't occur to me till later when she started to have uh, drug treatment that I realized, oh yes, her muscle control shouldn't be this good. It wasn't until she had been given uh, methadone that she lost muscle control because now she was a little more relaxed. So that's a very, very hard thing to watch. Um, some of the other things that you'll see are poor feeding and suckling. We often see uh, early uh, premature birth. We see uh, a difficulty with weight gain, um, diarrhea and spitting up, which leads to skin excoriation. So if you've seen a child with diaper rash, you know it's a little bit of a red bottom that they have. But with skin excoriation, what happens is there is so much um, diarrhea that you can't keep the diaper clean long enough to keep them from sitting in their own feces and urine. And so the skin actually starts to break open. So they have open wounds on their bottoms. Uh, so that makes every diaper change a challenge because they're screaming their way through it. And oh, by the way, when a child screams, their heart rate goes up. And so that's another thing that gets put onto the Finnegan score. Their heart rate went up. They were screaming uncontrollably and they have skin excoriation. All of these things lead to just a, a huge, a, a much higher number in the Finnegan score that then leads to a requirement for drug treatment. The sneezing is another interesting one, just real quick. So uh, sneezing, if, if a child sneezes more than five times in a row, that's considered a sign of addiction. So if you start to find yourself counting how many sneezes they had. So what are some of the drawbacks with Finnegan scoring? Well, the first is the consistency in scoring. And again, the nurses, do, the nurses do most of this, and they have a hugely difficult job. But when you change, so in the NICU, when you have 12 hours on and per shift, 12 hours per shift, you have one nurse who's doing three or four assessments, and then a new nurse comes in and does the next three or four assessments. And, if, and a lot of these assessments are subjective in nature. So what one nurse might feel is excessive crying. Another one says, oh, that's a baby. That's what they do. So they won't score that. Um, and then if you have ever looked at a child, a, a, an infant that's having mild seizures, it looks a little bit like shivering. So is that shivering because you've taken them out of their swaddling or is that actual seizing? So there's a lot of subjectivity to this, which makes the scores fluctuate over time, which goes back to why we want to do three consecutive assessments before we really start to go in and treat. So in my opinion, what would be helpful is uh, training in the use of the tool. Um, I, this is probably something that is getting better because we have, unfortunately, so many children that are born addicted. But even with that, if you have someone new to the, new to, uh, the NICU or new to this situation, giving them a little bit of training will help them to understand maybe what the, what the severity of some of these things are before we move them into, um, into a higher Finnegan score. So once you get past the diagnosis, now we've decided that we have a child that is, ha, has been diagnosed with NAS. Well, let's talk a little bit about treatment. And the first thing we're going to talk about are the, the drug treatments. And again, I'm a toxicologist, so I am not, I'm not the one that's deciding the, the doses. Um, but what I can tell you is that the most common do, uh, drugs that are used are morphine and methadone with a slightly lower um, incidence of buprenorphine. There's a few other options, but those are the three most common. Morphine um, does have the potential to produce respiratory depression and has a high abuse potential. So if a child is given morphine to get them through the addiction, that's most commonly going to happen in, um, in a NICU setting. Uh, you're, not gonna tend, you're generally not going to release them to the parents. Um, because you also have to worry about, in some cases, maybe the parents are going to take the, the morphine instead of the child. Methadone has a slightly 
reduced uh, hospital stay, so that makes it a, a, a bit of a, have an advantage over morphine. Um, and there is a slightly less abuse potential, but it also produces the respiratory depression, and we see some feeding intolerance, so children don't want to eat as well. And if you're already dealing with a low birth weight or a low body weight or difficulty in suckling or nursing, you don't want to add in something necessarily that's going to affect that as well. And then finally, buprenorphine has low to no abuse potential, so it drastically reduces hospital stays, but it has a significant um, ability to produce withdrawal symptoms. So you're actually going to increase the amount of withdrawal symptoms that you might see with children that are on buprenorphine. So when we're talking about any of these pharmacologic treatments, there's a few key considerations that we need to keep in mind. Um, one of them is that there's still relatively few studies in their effectiveness. A lot of people are doing these things, but they're sort of, for lack of a better word, making it up as they go along. And what worked before, we're going to try again. Uh, but unfortunately, every child is different. Um, and we're, we're actually trying to treat to control the symptoms. So you might have vastly different doses uh, that you have a, a child on. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, and then also... Any of these drugs, because they have the ability to, to affect receptor, uh, receptor output and receptor um, mobilization to the cell surface, they have an ability to affect the developing brain. So we have to worry about what's going on 10, 20, 30 years from now with these children that are born addicted, and then now we give them an, another addictive molecule to get them through. So... When we're talking then about non-pharmacologic treatments, we're, again, one of, the, one of the first things we have to think about is nurturing. Nurturing includes baby cuddling. Again, that's the one where we can have anybody come in and hold on to them and give them some love, and it sounds really wonderful, but, um, and it is. Uh, but uh, there is, you know, it's hard knowing what those children are suffering through. And then there's kangaroo care. And, I'm just going to go on the assumption that you are like me and I didn't know what kangaroo care was at first, and that's skin-to-skin -skin contact. So um, that's not something you're going to get with uh, if you're going to go into uh, a NICU and offer to volunteer. They're generally not going to, I don't believe, they have the volunteers take off the thank you. I have some shaking their head. So the, the child's not going to get that skin-to-skin uh, -skin contact that is really beneficial. That skin-to-skin -skin contact also increases maternal-infant bonding. So if you have um, a mom who has left uh, the situation and we have uh, caregivers coming in and doing that, we're not getting, we're, we're affecting that uh, bond as well. And then finally, sugar water. So sugar water is kind of an amazing little thing. Um, when you have a child who is, um, who's going through some of the worst effects or, of, of the uh, withdrawal, you can give them just a tiny little bit of sugar water, and it sort of calms them down. It, it helps, especially, I can tell you with my daughter, we gave her sugar water every time the nurse came in to take her, her temperature because she hated having that thermometer under her armpit. So the nurse came in, got the thermometer out, we'd, get a little, we'd give her a little shot of sugar water, and it would keep her relatively calm through that process. The environmental conditions are also important. So they'll tell you that they want you to keep the room dark, not no light, but, but low light, um, and then keep it relatively quiet. And a lot of children don't like that. So it depends on the, the combination of drugs that they've been exposed to, but some children don't like the touch, um, so, uh, don't like hard touches. So you have to be careful how you burp them and how you hold them. Um, so all of these things are important. And then pressure therapy becomes important. So sometimes just laying them there and putting a, a pressure um, pillow on them or a pressure blanket helps to, to soothe them a little bit. But every child is different. So you need to be flexible with this. I can tell you my child loved to be burped and, and hit kind of hard. And she wanted to be sung too. So we're singing right in her ears. Um, so all of the things that they told us not to do when forgive me, nurses, when, when the nurses walked out of the room, we'd start to do them because it made her a little calmer. Um, so don't do that. With, you know, that's not a good idea. Uh, okay, so um, then some other considerations that we need to keep in mind is where will treatment be offered? So in Ohio, I can tell you for sure uh, that the treatment and then the weaning process, so you have to eventually wean them off of these drugs, right? The treatment and weaning process is generally done inpatient, 
But in California, it's done outpatient. Once you get them under symptom control and they're stabilized and they start to successfully wean, the mom will be sent home with the child. Now, you wouldn't do this if mom is actively abusing herself. Uh, but if the, if the child is going to a stable home life, then the child would be sent home still on their drug. Uh, but whether you're doing it inpatient or outpatient can affect both cost, uh, the risk of the abuse liability. So are, is, the, is the parent going to come and take that drug? Um, the cost, obviously, the longer you have to stay in the NICU, uh, the higher the, the, the insurance costs, the higher hospital costs that you're going to get. And then family support. So we'll get into this in a little bit. But giving the family support is a big deal in terms of the success rate of weaning, the success rate of the child's uh, ultimate development. So providing a sufficient family support is another big thing. And then finally, weaning. So as the dose is low, so we're trying to get them off the drug, right? Um, so we have to lower it gradually, but you have to be aware and you want to tell uh, the family that as you lower that dose, the child's going to start to produce or show some of those withdrawal signs again. So every time you lower that dose, you should be looking. Are we going to start to see a little bit more seizing? Are we going to start to see um, the, the sneezing show up again? All of those are indications that, um, that they're becoming a little unstable. Now, that should stabilize, but if it doesn't, you might have to increase the dose again. So this is just a, a quick uh, reference for uh, a methadone weaning protocol that was used uh, for my daughter. And if anyone's interested, I can send it to them afterwards. My child was actually weaned off of or outside of a NICU. Once she was stabilized, we brought her home, which was wonderful because we were out in California. And I could come back to Ohio and wean her at home. Um, okay. Then the last thing. Uh, before we get into family support, is the long-term considerations that we need to be thinking about. So there is, there's a lot of studies out there on what we can expect to see in terms of uh, long childhood outcomes of neonatal abstinence syndrome and what we're looking at as an increased risk of SIDS, um, developmental delays, so slower growth and slower acquisition of key developmental endpoints, we see some cognitive deficits. We see some behavioral changes that are associated with these, uh, with these drugs. Um, but, but those studies are based off of a specific set of circumstances. Most of them are based off of the idea that the child is going back into the situation that produced them in the first place. Uh, so putting them back into a home where there's an addicted parent or parents. And that's important for us to understand, but not all children go back into that home. So understanding how, what we can do to provide support to the family might change the outcome for the child. And certainly, if you put, them into, if you put the child into a home that doesn't have addiction issues, then the outcomes are going to be different. Uh, maybe not completely different, but there, should, but there are some differences. And then I just want to remind everybody that we're not just treating the newborn. So the, uh, much of this focus has been on uh, what we can do with the, with the child. But again, parental-infant interaction is critical for appropriate cognitive development. So if, we are, if we're going to send the child home to the parents who were addicted, which is, that's a, not necessarily a bad thing. But we need to be aware that we have to provide support to that family as well. We need to teach them to be good parents. Uh, we need to teach them how to care for their child. So uh, this is just a, a, a brief summary of a, of a situation. Uh, Lucy was a child that was born 29 weeks gestation. Um, she was born addicted to heroin. Um, mom is trying to get herself under control. She's been pumping but some, uh, to bring in the, the breast milk to help her uh, to, to feed to, to Lucy. But unfortunately, she doesn't always make it in time, and um, she's very tentative in the way that she handles Lucy. Um, but Marcy, thinking to herself, and I'm just going to read this, I hope Lucy's doing okay. Uh, they said she was. I know the nurses don't like me. I can see it when they look at me. I'm so worried about Lucy, but I'm afraid to ask too many questions. Forgive me. 
They are so busy, and I don't always understand what they're telling me. I'm so scared to hold Lucy in case I hurt her. I know she's so small because of me. I want to be a good mom, but I'm afraid to look after her. She's so small. I didn't have money for the bus, and I'm embarrassed to tell them I broke, and I don't even have money to buy food right now. I need to go back to work, but how will I ever look after Lucy when she comes home? I don't know if I can do this. So she's getting, she's getting judgment in the eyes of the healthcare team, whose, whose whole goal is to make sure that Lucy is safe and protected. So what's the disparity then? So foster moms and adoptive moms coming into those situations and caring for their children, they don't get that. Um, I can tell you from firsthand experience that the healthcare team was wonderful with me. They gave me lots of support and what, what to look for um, and how to care for this, new, this newborn. And I didn't have any experience dealing with newborns. So um, there was a whole team out there to look for me, look out for me, and help make sure that my daughter was okay. Uh, but we're not, as a rule, or we're getting better, but as a rule we're still not where we need to be in terms of caring for the family unit. So I love this because this was a this is ACTS is a program that was set up by an, uh, a hospital for their nurses and ACTS stands for acknowledge, create circumstances for reflection, teach and support. And when I first found this, I was thinking it was talking about how we can help the mom, but this is actually focusing on how we can help each other, help the moms. So ACTS acknowledge, uh, don't directly criticize. So uh, if you hear a colleague that's saying, I can't believe she did that to her kid, say, I know I, I, I get frustrated with that too, but you know, we don't know her circumstances. Um, open a dialogue with that person. Create circumstances for reflection. So don't confront that person. Instead, uh, offer opportunities to reflect on his or her behavior. So um, you know, when, when you dealt with that mom, you, uh, when we dealt with that mom, what we were saying to her maybe, maybe felt difficult. So how can we, difficult for her to hear, how can we help make it easier for mom to hear? Teach then. Find ways to provide information. Give them brief articles. Put them around the NICU um, that somebody can pick up on their break. Or say, you know, I recently learned, hey, I, took, I just went to the GMHC conference and they had this great um, opioid uh, walkthrough and it taught me that, you know, many of these people that are suffering from opioid use disorder, they didn't do this to them. They didn't do this on purpose. It was an accident. It was an accident over a long period of time. And so, you know, like providing information to them and then support. So when you notice that you're seeing changes in how your colleagues are are treating the family, encourage that and say, you know, let's. How can we do that even more? So supporting them. And that's all I have. So I'm opening it up now to questions. Yes, sir. Um, I've got two questions. For an addicted uh, pregnant woman, how soon does she have to get off the drugs before the baby can be born without a problem? Without oh, you ask such good questions. Um, so I don't know that there... <sighs> Obviously, the sooner the better, but... Yeah, I mean, because... Unfortunately, if she's addicted, she's probably on her own treatment protocol, and a lot of the treatment protocols have their own abuse potential. So it's really, like, there's not a really good way of knowing for sure. Um, methadone, for example, a lot, of, uh, a lot of moms are on methadone, and they'll end up abusing that, or they'll switch back and forth between uh, their drug of choice and methadone. So... Um, that's, I, that's unfortunately, I can't answer that. Is anybody? Yep. Do you have? Um, we discourage our moms, actually, from weaning off of whatever they're addicted to while they're pregnant because of the potential for their baby to still go through withdrawal after delivery. So we encourage them to get into medication-assisted um, treatment program so that they're at least not having um, risk living in Wonderful, yeah. Okay, so just for uh, anybody who uh, couldn't hear, um, the, uh, 
parents are, uh, moms are actually encouraged not to wean themselves off of their drugs. They're encouraged to go to medication-assisted treatment programs. And so, wonderful. Thank you. Um, and I'll say that there's some good evidence against that as well, and um, uh, that there can be brought off. It needs to be weaned off slowly uh, over time. Being on this uh, idea of subutex while they're pregnant, these went, these babies go through NAS mm-hmm. uh, up to 25% mm-hmm. if you get them down to two mm-hmm. milligrams. So our goal needs to be getting them into a wraparound program uh, with behavioral medicine to kind of get to the bottom of why they're using and abusing to begin with. But but just to substitute one drug for another is not the right answer. Thank you. Thank you. And you had another question, sir? Is there any evidence about uh, treating a newborn, you know, weaning them off, using medicine, and just letting it go cold turkey? Is there any long-term studies? Uh, Well, I I don't – I experienced it from the mom's side, so forgive me when I say this, but I don't know that anybody could allow a child to go through those high scores – um, without treatment because um, it, it just escalates. So one of the things you'll see is as they, as they start to cry, which is a normal infant thing, they're going to cry every time they're hungry or, or wet or whatever, then their heart rate goes up. And then as their heart rate goes up, they're going to cry even more, and their skin gets blotchy. Um, and as their skin, uh, so, and then they might start to seize a little bit. So all of these things start to feed on one another. Their temperature goes up as well. And then we put them into threat, life-threatening situations. So we really want to keep that, all of those signs under control. It's really, again, about symptom control. And uh, I don't know that I've ever, I have not seen anything where they would allow a child to, to go through that. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. So what happens to the children? Like, what are the most the biggest threats to their health when they start to that? Um, okay. Oh. Yes, they can die. That's one thing. But also, I'm uh, one of the biggest threats to them is, unfortunately, the parents. Because they become uncontrollable because they, are, they can't get themselves out of this um, excessive crying and screaming and heart rate issues. And moms, who, moms and dads who are dealing with their own addiction, they can't handle it. So then they start to do, uh, they start to have behaviors that are inconsistent with, or incompatible with life, like shaking, why won't you stop crying, and, or just ignoring them. So, and, and I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to dig on parents either, because, I mean, this is, everybody's a victim in this situation. Uh, but yeah, I think if you're sending them home, Without treatment, that's bad. And if you're sending them home without treatment and it back into that situation, into that home life, that's a, that's a very bad thing. Yes, ma'am. I'm going to speak for just my institution. Right sure, now. please. Um, we were having problems with that happening, babies being sent home and not being caught. Coming back into our ER, taking baby syndrome Where are, you, where are you located? Finley, Ohio. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, because that sounds very similar to Orange County Hospital in California. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, but that's still, like, you're, you're demanding a tox screen. Uh, but we're doing it to everyone now. We're not profiling. We sure. Wonderful. So now they can refuse it, but then they get a referral. Sure. Also, um, I'm going to say that we treat our babies with morphine, and mm-hmm. if it continues to escalate, we used to add um, beta barb. Mm-hmm. We switched now to clonopin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we, once their store is stabilized for 24 hours, we start to wean. Sure. Um, and we don't send any babies home on medication. They're there for mm-hmm. 20, 48 hours um, afterwards. Sure. 
And then our nurses, we every year have annual competencies, and the NAM scoring is part of that. Wonderful. Every single year. Excellent. And if we see that a child is escalating in their score, or we see a big change in their behavior, then we do a dual scoring. So I'll go in and score my baby, and if he scored a 12 this time, and the last time he scored a 3, I'll go to my coworker and I'm like, okay, I just got a, a score very different than last time. You go in and see what you see, and then we'll collaborate on that. Um, and we include the moms now, too, so mm -hmm. um, so that they feel that they're part of that mm -hmm. that process. We take that paper that you had, mm -hmm. we take it right to the bedside, and if they're there, I do the... Um, I do that um, Finnegan score mm -hmm. right in front of her, and I'll point out when you see the modeling of the skin. You were holding her when she sneezed seven times. How many times has she scored in the last three out? Mm -hmm. uh, John in the yes. Line. You see that her bottom is bleeding now, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and that she's breathing so fast that she can't adequately eat. Sometimes they have to be too fed because that's the only thing we Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So I, just out of curiosity, does anybody have experience with at-home weaning? You, you do. Well, like uh, the child came home on a drug and yeah, okay. So yeah, so oh, um, so I can tell you coming back to Ohio, one of the things that I had to do was call doctors in my area and see if anybody would oversee the weaning process for us, or we would have had to discharge her to another NICU. And, you know, I wanted what was best for her, but I also wanted her home. And so, yeah, that was, it was a long process. And I know in Ohio it's very uncommon, uh, but because of our success, we had one other family that got to do the same thing. Uh, but uh, it's very specific, case by case, I think. Were there any other questions? I'm sorry. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.